Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Tuesday, January 17, and I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, this story by Grace King is titled, Black Middle Schoolers in Cedar Rapids Find Community in After School Initiative. Black middle school students in the African American Awareness Program are learning about their history reading books featuring characters that look like them, and learning how to protect themselves from police brutality. Georgia Odour, age 13, a 7th grader at Harding Middle School in Cedar Rapids, said one of the most valuable things she's learned in the program is her rights and what she should and shouldn't do when interacting with a police officer. Much of what Georgia learns about in the program is history she isn't taught in her other classes, she said. This includes learning about Alexander Clark, an activist remembered for his work in helping to desegregate Iowa schools, and more about the Greensboro sit-ins in 1960, when young black students staged a sit-in at a segregated Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, and refused to leave after being denied service. The program is an after-school program students can opt into at Cedar Rapids Middle Schools. To participate, students are required to have an equivalent 2.5 grade point average, good attendance, and good behavior. Jeanette Schroeder, facilitator for the Harding African American Awareness Program and 8th grade social studies teacher, said the program is a space for students to have difficult conversations that aren't always addressed in school, such as systemic racism. Systemic racism is racism that is embedded in the laws and regulations of a society or an organization. It is demonstrated as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, health care, education, and political representation. Schroeder, who is white, said teachers of color are needed at Harding and more across district buildings. It's important for black, brown, and biracial students to get a chance to learn positive parts of their history and develop pride in themselves and their culture, she said. There are 13 students in the program at Harding. Marley Shaughnessy, 13, a 7th grader at Harding, returned to the program for a second year because of the friends she's made and to learn about history in depth. Often when history about black people is taught in traditional classes, the focus is only on slavery, she said. Taya Archibald, 13, also a 7th grader at Harding, said she's been learning about who she is as a person by being part of a program. She also is learning how to address people who use racial slurs or who she disagrees with. Taya has come to trust Schroeder, who facilitates the program at Hardy, and goes to her when she needs help, she said. At Taft Middle School, the African American Awareness Program is facilitated by Monique Clark, who also is the engagement specialist at Taft and one of three black staff in the school, she said. It's not very often kids have someone who looks like them, who they can work closely with, and who can encourage and support them to be their best self, Clark said. The 18 students in the program at Taft meet weekly for book study, talk about the news, particularly as it relates to black people, 
and hear from a professional who is black about achieving career goals. Talking about policing could eliminate potential negative experiences students might have when they know how to approach an officer and what their rights are, Clark said. Clark considered herself a life teacher to the students in the program, but some even call her mom, she said. I approach them all with kindness, but I don't play. They know they will be held accountable, she said. Kids need to see positive examples of black people throughout history, Clark said. They need to learn about their communities, who they are, and the potential of who they can become. I grew up in schools where I was one of the few kids of color, and I didn't have anyone who looked like me to talk to, Clark said. For these kids in particular, I try to give as much of me as I can. I have kids that I know come and talk to me because I look like them. I'm humbled by that, and I'm not going to take that for granted. Eleven percent of Harding's student body is black or African American. Almost 67 percent of the students are white, and the other students are Hispanic, multiracial, or Asian, according to the Iowa Department of Education. At Taft, about 9% of the students are black or African American, 73% are white, and other students are Hispanic, multiracial, and Asian. The African American Awareness Program feeds into the Academy for Scholastic and Personal Success, a six-week summer program for black students in the Cedar Rapids and College Community School Districts. The Academy was founded over 30 years ago by former Washington High teacher Ruth White. It provides students an education they can't find in a public school classroom. It teaches students about black history, literature, math, and science, and holds a post-secondary seminar to help students prepare for college and how to be successful once they get there. White sought to bring that same education to younger students, first through an academy expansion for elementary kids, and then by launching the African American Awareness Program a few years ago. The academy expansion teaches students in grades 3 through 5 academic and leadership skills and cultural awareness. It is housed at Johnson Steam Academy and meet once a week to get, or excuse me, once a week during the school year. To get involved in these programs, visit the Academy's website at theacademymysps.com. Also on the front page, this story by Aaron Jordan is titled, Crypto Mining Grows in Iowa. Cryptocurrency mining, which relies on cheap, abundant energy to power banks of computers, is expanding in Iowa with Hardin County considering two new sites. Mining Store, which in 2019 opened its flagship mining site in Grundy County, is asking Hardin County in north-central Iowa to rezone two parcels of agriculture to manufacturing to allow for installation of mining sites next to electrical substations owned by Midland Power Cooperative. This is kind of a new thing, not like a restaurant or a commercial facility, said Hardin County Supervisor B.J. Hoffman. The Grundy County site has a large Quonset hut humming with fans that cool more than 1,000 computers that work round the clock to solve math problems that create Bitcoin, the world's most well-known cryptocurrency. As each new block of Bitcoin is solved, mining operations like this get a payout. 
The Hardin County sites, if approved, would be smaller with vented crates that contain servers. Mining store founder and chief executive officer J.P. Barrick, age 25, of North Carolina, spoke earlier this month to the Hardin County Board of Supervisors. The county's Planning and Zoning Commission will consider his proposal January 24th and then make a recommendation to the supervisors. Cryptocurrency mining has raised concerns in Iowa and elsewhere because of how much electricity it uses. The White House reported in August the global electricity use for crypto mining was between 120 billion and 240 billion kilowatt hours per year, which is more than the annual electricity use of some countries, including Argentina and Australia. This urge, sir, excuse me, surge in demand is happening as the world is trying to reduce electricity consumption because of climate change. Each of the proposed Hardin County sites would use 5 megawatts, the equi- equivalent of powering four to 9,000 homes, according to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But supporters of crypto mining say they are adding resilience to the power grid by using surplus wind and solar energy that's only wasted if utilities don't have battery storage. At times of peak energy needs, the mining sites would halt operations, giving the utility more capacity for other customers. They signed an agreement with Midland Power Cooperative to shutter their operation to a minimum during peak times. Whether it's July or August in Iowa when everyone is using AC, or in the middle of December when power consumption is high as well, Hoffman said. <coughs> Cedar Falls, <coughs> excuse me, Cedar Falls Utilities signed leases in 2021 with two companies, Simple Mining and Energy Conservation Group, to place crypto mining crates at its utility site. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier reported in June. The utility is trying out the arrangement because the mining developers pay for infrastructure and help with demand response, the city-owned utility said in a PowerPoint presentation that Barrick showed with the Gazette. But these local utilities still rely a great deal on coal and natural gas. Midland Power Cooperative, which provides electrical service to 17 Iowa counties, gets at least 46% of its power from coal, according to its website. In 2021, Cedar Falls Utilities was getting about 60% of its energy from non-renewable sources, including coal and natural gas. The mining store also has opened a crypto mining site in Marshall County near St. Anthony, Hoffman said. The Blackout County Board of Supervisors in August decided against rezoning to allow a crypto farm, citing noise and energy use. Grundy County also voted down a second location proposed by Mining Store. Also on the front page, this store by Barb Ix of the Quad City Times, 911 call reveals more details of Makokota Caves murders. The lone 911 call that was made on the morning of a triple homicide last summer at Makokota Caves State Park came from the mother of the man police say was the killer. As the sun rose July 22nd on the popular park in Jackson County, two gunshots rang out. A little boy screamed and ran for help. His parents were shot, he said. There was blood. 
A nearby camper took the boy by the hand, hurried toward the campground entrance, and dialed 911. The contents of that call reveal more about what happened at the park than what investigators have been willing to disclose over the past six months, despite having concluded the case. Cecilia Sherwin struggled with the pronunciation of Makokata. After several attempts at describing her location, it clicked for the Jackson County 911 dispatcher. She was talking about Makokata Caves. Shooting, shooting, Sherwin said. We heard it this morning, and this kid screaming. He said his parents were shot, and there's blood. The 911 call, obtained by the Quad City Times Dispatch Argus, through an open records request to Jackson County, lasts for 23 minutes. The dispatcher is heard asking questions of Sherwin and trying to call law enforcement. As he called the park ranger and the phone continued to ring and ring, the dispatcher said, Come on, just before the ranger's phone went to voicemail. The connection between the dispatcher and Sherwin was briefly lost at one point, but she called back. The dispatcher again put her on hold as he tried to connect help. Nearly ten minutes after her initial call, the dispatcher asked more questions, including where she was in the park exactly. At the entrance with the little boy, she replied. He was screaming in the tent. We heard the shots. The dispatcher had questions for the boy, too, so Sherwin handed him her phone. Who am I talking to? the dispatcher asked. Me, the boy replied. Then came some detail. The boy's name was Arlo. He was nine years old. He was camping in a tent with his mom, his sister, and his dad. I woke up and there was someone like someone in like black clothes and they had a weapon when my sister was screaming, Arlo said. The dispatcher asked where his dad was. The boy paused and then replied, I think they were hurt. He repeated to the dispatcher that the man had a small gun and was wearing black clothes. He then handed the phone back to Sherwin. A few seconds later, she could be heard asking the boy, Honey, are you okay? What's wrong? The dispatcher assured them help was coming. A trooper and park ranger aren't too far away, he said. An ambulance was standing by at the park's visitor center. After 23 minutes, the 911 call concluded with the arrival of a park ranger. Asked last week why she took the boy to the entrance of the park to call 911, Sherwin said, We were running to safety, thinking someone in black was going to shoot us. Inside a tent near the entrance to the upper campground at Makokata Cave State Park, police found the bodies of Sarah and Tyler Schmidt, both 42, and their daughter, 6-year-old Lula. Two weeks later, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation publicly disclosed the causes of the deaths. Tyler was shot and stabbed. Sarah was stabbed. Lula was shot and strangled. Arlo was the only member of a family from Cedar Falls to escape injury. Anthony Sherwin, age 23, had been traveling and camping with his parents, Cecilia and Joe. He has his own. He was in his own tent. The campground had a total of about a dozen campers, Cecilia Sherwin had told the 911 dispatcher. Anthony Sherwin's body was found near the campground a short distance away, but still inside the park, according to an investigator's remarks at a news conference on the day of the killings. In addition to revealing the causes of death August 4, 
The DCI declared that Sherwin had been the killer. All evidence collected at this point substantiate Sherwin was the perpetrator of the homicides and acted alone. His parents don't believe it. Neither his character nor the bit of evidence shared with them proves he did it, they said. Cecilia Sherwin said her son suffered two gunshot wounds. She thinks the first would have been debilitating and wonders how he managed to shoot himself again. Police have declined to answer any questions and have not publicly released any additional information since August 4. The list of unanswered questions is long, but one in particular bothers Cecilia Sherwin because it seems simple to answer. Was the gun police say was used by her son to kill himself the same gun that was used in the shootings of Tyler and Lula Schmidt? She and her husband specifically asked one of the lead investigators whether a ballistics match had been made. They didn't get an answer, she said. The Quad City Times Dispatch Argus also has filed requests for public records for that under Iowa's Open Records Law and the Freedom of Information Act. The request sought incident reports, investigation documents, and crime scene summaries, and autopsy reports. The records you seek are not public, replied Debbie McClung, Strategic Communications Bureau Chief with the Iowa Department of Public Safety. We can share immediate facts and circumstances, which are contained in the press release links which I provided you. McClung was asked in an email January 11 whether the gun used in the suicide matched the one used in the slayings. She did not respond. The Sherwins' requests for information also have either been denied or ignored, Cecilia Sherwin said. She was able to independently obtain her son's autopsy report, she said, but it only added to her confusion. She knew Anthony was wearing green shorts because she had given him them the day before the shootings as she handed out the last of the clean clothes from the family's camping trip. The autopsy listed the clothing Anthony was wearing, which included the green shorts. To the Sherwins, the clothing distinction is important because Arlo had been insistent the person who killed his family was wearing black. The reason we want the final report is that we want an independent review of what they say has happened because we believe it. We believe Anthony was murdered and did not commit that crime, Cecilia Sherwin said. The people who likely knew Anthony best, his parents, say he wasn't capable of killing and he had no connection whatsoever to the Schmitz. Why would he violently attack them at sunrise? We were told there was no motive and it was random, she said. Investigative matters <clears throat> aren't the only details that remain under wraps. Police won't even tell the Shermans where in the park their son's body was found, Cecilia Sherwin said. Why can't we know where our son's last moments on earth were so we can put a small cross and flowers there, she asked. Arlo Schmidt is being raised by extended family, according to reports from his hometown. Cecilia Sherwin regularly thinks of the boy, she said. Turning to page two, this story by Emily Anderson, man shot during break-in previously lived in the house. A man fatally shot last week while breaking and entering had previously lived in the house he was breaking into, according to court documents. Patrick M. O'Brien, age 30, was shot by a man living in a home in the 300 block of South Sycamore Street in Monticello. 
The man called 911 at 1.48 a.m. Wednesday to report that someone was attempting to break into the house where he was home with a 10-year-old child, according to a news release from the Monticello Police Department. Before law enforcement arrived, the man shot O'Brien, who had managed to get into the house and confronted him. The man and child were not harmed. A petition for custody of minor children filed in Jones County Court by O'Brien in September states that O'Brien previously lived at the house on South Sycamore Street with the mother of his children, though O'Brien and the woman had since moved. The woman, who has two young children with O'Brien, filed a complaint of domestic abuse against him in October. A temporary protective order was filed on behalf of the woman, but neither the domestic abuse case nor the custody case were concluded. No criminal charges had been filed against O'Brien in Jones County. And this by Emily Anderson. A Bettendorf woman was killed in a crash on Interstate 80 Saturday morning in Cedar County. Rebecca McLean, age 46, was driving a 2020 Honda PC motorcycle on Interstate 80 at mile marker 277 outside Durant around 3 a.m. Saturday, according to the Iowa State Patrol crash report. McLean was driving eastbound in the westbound lanes of the interstate and hit a semi-truck coming the other way, being driven by Stuart Anderson, age 65, of Northwood. McLean died in the crash. Anderson was uninjured. The crash still is under investigation by the state patrol. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a reprint from Sunday's New York Daily News, and the title, Raising Fees for Immigration Applicants is Wrong. It's very reasonable that when you're paying thousands of dollars in fees for a service, you expect it be done well. You certainly don't expect your fees to be dramatically increased to coincide with the service being performed much slower and less efficiently, as has been proposed for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. In a federal rule published this month, the Homeland Security sub-agency floated steep increases to fees for employment visas and green cards, raising costs that are already practically unaffordable for many employers and applicants. Visas like O-1, H-1B, and L-1 for workers of various types will all go up, with the latter increasing by more than double to $1,385 for just an application that may well be denied. Any employer in any industry heavily dependent on foreign workers will tell you that the system is an expensive and bureaucratic hassle as it is, and increasing costs right as we are trying to build out capacity in high-tech sectors like semiconductors is a terrible idea. In an economy with a continuing strong labor demand, what we need is more workers, not fewer. Not long ago, we celebrated the high number of naturalizations during the prior fiscal year, while noting that this was despite the current bureaucracy, not because of it. Now, full applications for adjustment of status to permanent residency, a precursor to citizenship, could go up 130% from $1,225 to 2820 
For a family with a spouse and a couple of kids applying, that expense could be insurmountable. USCIS claims these increases are necessary for it as a fee-funded agency to keep up with processing, cut through backlogs, and keep humanitarian applications free. Yet, maybe it should start by cleaning house. As pointed out by the Cato Institute's David J. Beer, buried in the rule itself is the admission that USCIS is simply taking longer to review most forms than it did in the past, gumming up the works. Find efficiencies first before foisting more costs on applicants. And the guest column today is by Jonathan Bernstein. Documents separate Biden and Trump. One of the many problems with having former President Donald Trump around is that it becomes extremely difficult to assess normal misbehavior. It's a significant reminder of how Trump continues to corrupt the nation's politics. That, so far at least, is the story behind the revelation that President Joe Biden improperly had classified documents at a think tank office and in his Delaware home. It's impossible to discuss this properly without mentioning the many ways in which what Biden apparently did is nothing like what Trump did. There still is much that we don't know about the Biden incidents, and it certainly deserves a thorough investigation. But the crucial difference is plain. Trump has claimed to be above the law when it comes to classified materials, while Biden has said that he will fully cooperate with the investigation into the matter. Trump didn't voluntarily hand over anything to the National Archives and instead has fought the agency every step of the way to retain documents the government knew were missing. Biden's team, in contrast, voluntarily turned over items that the archives weren't aware of, and Trump appears to have retained far more documents and handled them far more cavalierly than Biden did. I won't speculate on the legal consequences, but presidents swear to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and have the responsibility to care that the laws be faithfully executed. For a former president and now presidential candidate, to publicly claim that the law doesn't apply to him is a far worse offense and far more disqualifying for future office than almost anything that could be done with classified information. And that is what Trump has repeatedly done, whether by claiming executive privilege to defend his possession of classified materials, or with his assertion of absolute immunity from lawsuits, or simply in how he regularly dismisses the legitimacy of judges and prosecutors. While we don't want to assess Biden based only on the extremely low bar of doing better than Trump, as long as Trump remains on the scene, it just, it's just Excuse me, it isn't just a natural comparison, but a necessary one. When Biden makes a false claim, as he has been known to do throughout his career, including as president, we shouldn't dismiss it just because Trump did worse. But we also should keep in mind that all politicians make some sort of error at times, and if Biden does it more often than many, he still is nothing like Trump. We don't yet know why classified documents turned up at Biden's home and office. It could be the result of minor filing mistakes by others that Biden handled well once someone realized the error. Or it could be something worse. 
Attorney General Merrick Garland's decision to appoint a special counsel to look into the matter might turn out to be overkill, but it's another reminder that in this administration, the president isn't above the law. Trump reminds us what disregard for the rule of law really looks like. At the same time, it doesn't absolve Biden from what he has done, whatever that turns out to be. That's submitted by Jonathan Bernstein, who is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. One community letter today is titled, Do Republicans Feel Shame for Speaker Vote? To the Republicans responsible for voting for the current members of the House, do you not feel intense shame for the debacle that occurred while the new House Speaker was voted for? Beginning January 3 and ending January 7, after 15 rounds of voting, this was seemingly achieved only after giving whether, whatever it was, Matt Getz, who, by the way, was seated next to the infamous George Santos, wanted from Kevin McCarthy in exchange for his vote. Other than trying to embarrass Hunter Biden, what will they accomplish for the next two years? Will they pass anything that will benefit their constituents? Will they pass anything that will benefit the United States? Will they continue to be buddies with members of the militia in violation of their oath? Will they continue the big lie that Trump won when he actually lost? How many will actually honor the oath they took? I solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. And that letter today is signed by Shirley Burnett from Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, January 17, on IRIS. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices, first from Anamosa, Catherine Heasty, 98, died Friday, January 13, Getch Funeral Home. From Cedar Rapids, two notices. First, Jeanette Faye Arstum, age 99, died Sunday, January 15. Cedar Memorial in, in Cedar Rapids is in charge of those arrangements for Jeanette. And also, Eric Travis Taylor, age 37, died Tuesday, January 10. Iowa Cremation is assisting Eric's family. In Decorah, Marvin Pankow, age 76, died Sunday, January 15. Helms Funeral Home. In Guttenberg, Lee Allen Horstman, age 73, died Saturday, January 14. Took Allen Funeral Home. In Iowa City, Dolores Ann Burns, age 80, died Friday, January 13th. Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service. In Lisbon, Claude E. Oler, 91, died Sunday, January 15th. Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, Cedar Rapids. From Maquoketa, Robert L., known as Bob Warner, 75, died Saturday, January 14th. Carson Celebration of Life Center. From McGregor, Commander Retired David Scott, age 85, died Friday, January 13th. Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Newall, Rosemary Mangold, 82, died Sunday, January 15th. Phillips Funeral Home, Vinton. In North English, Rick 
Wayne Ayers, age 68, died Friday, January 13th. Howell Funeral Home. In Shellsburg, Kevin Neil Heckman, 58, died Sunday, January 15th. Phillips Funeral Home is in charge. In Sigourney, Larry Fairchild, age 85, died Saturday, January 14th. Home Funeral Home is assisting. In Tama, Philip Warren Falloon, 75, died Sunday, January 15th. Cruz Phillips Home in Tama is assisting. From Vinton, Ronald, known as Ron Keith Flickinger, 86, died Sunday, January 15th. Van Steenheis Tien Funeral Home in Vinton is assisting. In Volga, Roy J. Murphy, age 77, died Saturday, January 14th. Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home. And in other one other death, Irma Martha Giesler Williamson, age 105, of Eastman, Wisconsin, died Sunday, January 15th. Thornburg Grau Funeral Home and Cremation of Prairie Duchene is assisting Irma's family. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Solon, Connie Joy Goldsberry, age 77, passed away Friday, January 13th at the Gardens of Cedar Rapids. Visitation for Connie will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 20th at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Celebration of Life Service will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 21st at the Shueyville United Methodist Church with an earnment to follow in Oakland Cemetery in Solon. Online condolences can be expressed to the family at broshchapel.com. In Cedar Rapids, Donald Stephen Stagg, age 86, of Walford, Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, January 13th at Mercy Medical Center. Visitation will be 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 18th at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood. Funeral service will be at 10 a.m. Thursday, January 19th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home, 520 Wilson Avenue Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Private family burial will be at a later date at Anderson Cemetery in Swisher. Please share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Guttenberg, Jeffrey Balsinger, 63, passed away Sunday, January 8th at home with his family. He was born January, excuse me, June 12, 1959, and graduated from Guttenberg High School. Arrangements are being handled by Tuke Allen Funeral Home in Guttenberg. A celebration of life is planned for Sunday, January 29th from 2 to 5 at the Stadium Bar and Grill in Guttenberg. In Cedar Rapids, Kim William Schulte, 65, died Monday, January 9. Burial will be at a later date. In Wyoming, Carol A. Thien, 74, passed away Saturday, January 14th at the Monticello Nursing and Rehab. Her family has granted her wish for cremation. Dawson Funeral Services of Wyoming is caring for the family at this time. Memorials may be directed to her family in her honor and mailed to Tyan and Heather Teen, 211 East Green Street in Wyoming, 52362. Online condolences can be shared at DawsonFuneral.com. In Marion, 
Gerald, known as Jerry R. Groom, passed away Sunday, January 15th, with his wife by his side. Jerry passed away after courageously battling CLL, which is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, for 19-plus years. He was at stage five different times during those many years. He's a survivor in every sense of the word. According to his wishes, cremation rites have been accorded. The family wishes to express sincere thanks for the exceptional care that Jerry received. And in memory, your memorials can be directed to Camp Courageous of Monticello. From Marion, Jeff W. Johnson, age 67, died Sunday, January 15th, at Unity Point, St. Luke's, due to a sudden illness. Per Jeff's wishes, cremation has taken place, and no services will be held at this time. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation of Marion is assisting the family. Please share a memory of Jeff at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Cedar Rapids, Jeffrey, known as Dave Borgensen, Dave Miller, 53, passed away Thursday, January 12, from some underlying health issues. Celebration of Life Gathering will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 27th at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest. In Central City, Nelda Lovine Knowlton, age 96, passed away Saturday, January 14th at St. Luke's Transitional Care Center in Cedar Rapids. Family will greet friends from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at the Murdoch Funeral Home Cremation Service in Central City. A funeral will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 20th at the United Church of Christ, 38 North 5th Street in Central City. The Reverend Vicki Engelman will officiate. Burial will follow at Mount Clark Cemetery in Central City. Memorials may be made to the family to be designated later. From Treyer, Lauren Ewald, 92, died January 13th at Sunrise Hill Care Center in Treyer. The funeral will be Wednesday, January 18th at 10.30 a.m. at Overton Funeral Home. Military rites will be conducted by the Treyer American Legion. Visitation will be Tuesday, January 17th from 5 to 7 at Overton Funeral Home in Treyer. In Cedar Rapids, Joyce Renee Baumgarten, age 64, passed away Thursday, January 12. A celebration of life will be held at 2 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at Radiant Church, 3233 Blairs Ferry Road, Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Family and friends are welcome to join, and the family is asking that flowers not be sent. Instead, they would like a donation to be made in Joyce's name to Iowa COPS. From Marion, Mary Jo Murray, 84, longtime resident of Marion, passed away January 15th at Country House Residence in Cedar Rapids. Services are at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 19th at St. Joseph's Catholic Church by Father David O'Connor. A private burial will take place at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family at the church from 9.30 on Thursday. Tian Funeral Home is caring for the family. Memorials may be directed to the Marion Public Library Foundation, Mount Mercy University, or the Alzheimer's Association. 
In Coralville, Weldon W., known as Butch Wrighton, 75, passed away December 20 at UIHC in Iowa City. A celebration of Butch's life will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, January 21st at Lensing's Oak Hill in Coralville. In honor of Butch, if you do attend his celebration of life, we encourage you to wear your favorite sports gear. Do not feel the need to dress up. He wouldn't want you to. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed toward the Friends of the Animal Center, excuse me, Animal Center Foundation. A full obituary and online condolences can be shared at lensingfuneral.com. In Iowa City, Olga Will, age 95, passed away January 13th. A visitation will be held at 1 p.m. Friday, January 20th at Our Redeemer Lutheran in Iowa City, followed at 2 p.m. with a memorial service officiated by Pastor Brent Hartwig. Graveside committal will be held in the future at West Point Cemetery. Online condolences can be left at lensing.com. And lastly, from Loudon, Dorothy Eileen Minxt Pingle, age 96, passed away January 15th at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Funeral services will be held at Chapman Funeral Home on Saturday, January 21st at 10.30 a.m. Pastor Scott Meyer officiating. Visitation will be from 9.30 until service time. Burial will be in Pine Hill Cemetery. Memorials may be sent to Camp Courageous or Zion United Church of Christ in memory of Dorothy. Memories and condolences can be left at chapmanfh.com. Turning now to the sports page, this sideline note in boys swimming, the Linmar Aquatic Center will be one of six host sites for the IHSAA Boys District Swim Meet February 4. Linmar, along with Cedar Rapids rivals Jefferson, Kennedy, and Washington, will be in the 18 field as, long, as well as Williamsburg. The Lions are ranked fifth in the latest power rankings. Number seven, Iowa City West, and number 12, Iowa City High, were placed in different districts. The Trojans will be in the field at Dubuque Hempstead, along with area schools Decorah and Vinton Shellsburg while the Little Hawks will compete at Davenport Central. All meets will begin at noon. Tickets for 2023 district meets will go on sale 9 a.m. February 1st through the tickets page on the IHSAA website. All sites will utilize digital tickets through IHSAA partner Hometown Ticketing. The fastest 32 individual swimmers and 24 relay teams from district competition will qualify for state competition. The state meet is scheduled for February 10 and 11 at the University of Iowa's Campus Recreation and Wellness Center in Iowa City. And in boys basketball, this Jeff Johnson story, Kennedy takes number one in Class 4A. A Metro boys basketball team has lost its top ranking, but another has gained one. Cedar Rapids Kennedy is number one in Class 4A in the latest Iowa High School Athletic Association poll released Monday afternoon. The Cougars won a pair of games handily last week, and their margin of victory average this season is a gaudy 34.4 points. Kennedy averages 81 points offensively, which leads 4A. 
Dropping from the top spot to number two this week is Waukee Northwest, 11-1, which lost its first game of the season last week to West Des Moines Valley, 75-64. Waukee, at 11-2, remains third, though it too lost last week. The rest of the top five is Valley and Ankeny Centennial. Kennedy plays a big one tonight at Dubuque Senior, 10-1, which is ranked 8th. Cedar Rapids Xavier, 9-2, lost last week to Dubuque Wallert and Iowa City High and fell from 1st to 3rd in Class 3A. Wallert is a 3A school. City High is 4A. Bondurant Farrar at 11-0 is the new number 1 in 3A, followed by MOC Floyd Valley. Sioux City Healan is 4th and Webster City is 5th. Marion has joined the 3A rankings at 7th. The Wolves at 10-3 and three have losses to Kennedy, City High, and by two points on a neutral court to Bondurant Farrar. That's just an incremental amount of change in the 2A poll. Grundy Center at 11-2 and two joins the top 10. Central Lion are Applington Parkersburg, Western Christian, Roland Story, and West Burlington are your top five in that order. Alburnett at 12-1 and one moves up one spot from 7th to 6th. Wapsie Valley at 11-1 is the new 1A poll at 10th. Grandview Christian is a solid number one. North Lynn at 12-0 is second. This boy's bowling story is by Ryan Plegenkuhl. Cody Hunker finally one-upped his dad. The Wacon senior bowled his first 300 at Decorah's Kingpin Entertainment Center last month in an away meet against the Vikings. It's definitely one I'll remember forever, Hunker said. Everybody else stopped bowling. Fans were around for bowl schools. It was nice to see that both fans were supporting it, as it was such a big accomplishment. It was quiet until the ball was on the lane. The people would start to cheer a little bit, the anticipation of it, and then it stuck. And I was pretty happy, and everyone else around too. It was amazing. Hunker's previous high was 298 he shot last spring outside of the high school season. While impressive, his 298 fell a pin short of his father Corey's top score. He's had a 299, Hunker said, so to have him now by the one pin, it's pretty cool. He's helped me improve all throughout my years of bowling, so he was really proud. I've been close so many times, so to see it play out and be a 300, he was overjoyed. What was different about this particular evening that led to his magical game? For Hunker, it was a combination of familiarity and a feeling. The advantage in bowling is we can go to the bowling alley in Decorah and play the night before, Hunker said. I went over on Thursday, December 1st, and bowled a 279, so I was feeling it over there, I guess you should say. Hunker currently ranks 10th across all Iowa high school classes in pins per game at 228. He's the pins leader for a walk-on boys team that's off to a 3-1 start. Turning to the community page, this story by Diana Nolan, Mirror Box Theater trying brand new thing. At first glance, Wednesday night's show at Mirror Box Theater looks like a departure from the norm, but it actually hits the right notes to fit the mission. It's a one-nine-only karaoke event. Batman Returns Returns was prompted, or excuse me, promoted as a karaoke-style musical, and afterward, 
Some people reached out to Mirrorbox founder Kaven Hallman, saying they would really love to do karaoke in this space, he noted. I always love getting feedback and suggestions, he said. For me, though, when I receive a suggestion like that, my first question is, how does this fit into our mission? How can this fit? How can all of our programming fit into what we're trying to accomplish as a nonprofit? He didn't see other area troops staging karaoke, so he decided to put a theatrical spin on the idea, engaging several performers to share a two- to four-minute monologue and related songs to open the show. Then it's the viewer's turn to belt out songs of their choice. The ensemble features Mick Evans, Katie Hallman, Sarah Michaels, and Aaron Posdall, all familiar faces on the Cedar Rapids theater scene. Kevin Hallman will get in on the act as well, performing I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis in the News, which he considers to be one of the best bar bands of the 1980s. In brief, If You Go is called The Karaoke Show, a brand new thing at the Mirrorbox Theater, 7.30 Wednesday. Tickets are $5, and that's located at 1200 Ellis Boulevard Northwest in Cedar Rapids. In some area briefs in Iowa City, learn about opioids, overdoses, and naloxone. The Iowa City Johnson County Senior Center will hold a training that explores what opioids are and how they work. That's from 1 to 2.30 p.m. January 25th at the Senior Center, 28 South Lynn Street. The training is open to all community members and will be taught by Carrie Hugh, a prevention specialist at Community and Family Resources in Iowa. She will explain how to identify an opioid poisoning or overdose and respond with naloxone, the life-saving medication that can reverse the overdose. Participants at the training may sign up to receive a free naloxone kit by mail. In Amana, a series of workshops focuses on history of the Amana community. A winter symposium will be held on four Sundays starting January 29 at the Amana Church in the village of Amana, hosted by the Amana Church and Amana Heritage Society. Each session will be a new topic and starts at 4 p.m. January 29, Why Join the Inspirationists? The Case of Christian Haldi. January 5, Paul Giesebert, Nagel, Keeping the Flame Burning. February 12, The Settlement of Middle Amana. And February 19, About Christian Mets. A Question of Pacifism or Patriotism, World War I, Amana. In Makokata, learn about Iowa's reptiles and amphibians at a special program, 2 p.m. January 25 at the Hurstville Interpretive Center in Makokata. Watch as a Jackson County conservation naturalist feeds live snakes, turtles, and salamanders. The program is free and open to all ages. Register 48 hours in advance by calling the Jackson County Conservation at 563 652 3783. And the deadline to nominate someone for Marion's Community Impact Award is 11.15 p.m. January 31st. The Marion Chamber of Commerce and City of Marion partner on the Morris F. Neighbor Community Impact Award. The award was launched in 2021 in recognition of banker Morris F. Neighbor of Farmer State Bank. 
Troy and Katie Benham of Marion were awarded the first Community Impact Award in 2022. Community Impact Award nominees may be an individual, couple, or organization whose volunteerism and service and dedication have made an impact in the Marion community. Visit Marion CC Community Impact Award to access the nomination form. In Things to Do Today, singing as a therapeutic strategy helps with treatment for voice, respiration, and swallow impairment for people with Parkinson's. This class is led by a certified music therapist held in person or via Zoom. That takes place at 2 to 2.45 p.m., the Cedar Rapids Metro Parkinson's Association in Cedar Rapids. And the yoga class, Slow Flow Yoga, is 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. at the Veterans Memorial Building in Cedar Rapids. Cost is $10 or free for veterans and active military. Finishing up with a look at the weather today, a high of 38 in Cedar Rapids, cloudy, and rain likely into the weekend. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday all have clouds in that weather picture. The normal high for today is 27. The normal low is 11. We set a record high of 58 degrees in 1894, a record low of 23 degrees below zero in 1982. Sunset tonight is 5.03 p.m., sunrise tomorrow at 7.31 a.m., That gives us 9 hours and 32 minutes of daylight, and we are in the waning crescent moon phase with moonrise at 4.25 a.m. and moonset at 1.28 p.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, January 17th. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on iowaradioreadinginformationservice.com. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.